Hello, and welcome to the Oscar Went To, the podcast that looks back at a year in film and sees what films endured, what films didn't, and attempts to figure out why. Please give it up for your masters of ceremony, Max Salim and Nick Mestad. like on a live stage automatically imbues one with energy just because of that adrenaline of being in front of people so it kind of goes without saying i i feel like actors who are on camera more probably encounter that more yeah is that is that a phrase that you have used being in the in the on the production side of things uh no that's not usually a direction i give but it's funny i've never i've never directed anything where the actors are saying anything well, it, and it's kind of weird to look back on five years of being on production. Um, you're right. I guess it's just like, it's just how we do stuff. But yeah. we never have like a boom guy and you're never like directing a, a, a verbal performance. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, so you're talking about your professional career because as soon as you said you never directed anyone, you haven't directed people talking. I was about to cite our college uh that's true i have directed you talking before yeah, sure and actually now that i think about it i was always telling you to fucking turn on so <laughs> in fact yeah it was and it, now that i reflect on it i i think i should have taken the note because it was just progressively angrier and i just never <laughs> never absorbed it jk that was the only direction actually turn on turn on turn on do you have a switch <laughs> All right, all right, all right, all right. So, um, again, this is a movie podcast, so let's get into it. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to the Oscar Went To. This week, as a supplement to our 1994 episode, we're getting our scuba gear on and doing a deep dive into the 1994, um, I don't know if I would call it a hit, but certainly important movie, The Shawshank Redemption, directed mm -hmm. by Frank Darabont. I'm Max. I'm Nick. Let me get through a few, a little bit more uh, housekeeping here. On this podcast, we like to look back on a year in film and decide what has aged well and what hasn't and try to figure out why. If that sounds interesting to you, jump back two episodes in our feed and check out our recap of 1994. Then after those recaps, we jump into the depths and take a closer look at some of the films that have piqued our interest from a given year. As we say every week, quick disclaimer, deep dive episodes are no holds barred and we absolutely get into spoiler territory. So if you've never seen Shawshank Redemption and you'd like to see it, this might not be a good starting episode for you. Okay, boilerplate complete. Let's get into it. Let's. Shawshank. Redemption. Well, let's uh, let's set the table a little bit. So uh, this movie, other than being fairly ubiquitous and it kind of feels redundant to even set the table because I don't feel like it's necessary for most contemporary listeners, but The Shawshank Redemption currently holds a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, has an 80% on Metacritic. It was a, it was a box office failure uh, at the time of its release, although it was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and went on to become the highest rented movie uh, the following year in 1995, and then became an absolute staple on TNT and, and uh, TBS uh, in the years to come. 
And perhaps most importantly, this is, uh, it holds a 9.3 out of 10 on IMDb, making it, as we referenced previously, the highest rated movie of all time on IMDb, which is user voted and submitted. So, well, let me, let me drop in a cut while yeah, we're please. talking about context a little bit. Drop it let in. Let me say, you know, by no means is the IMDb rating definitive in any no. sense, but no, you know, it, it's a, it's a, a very heavily used movie website and, and to, to, to have IMDb users declaring this essentially the best film ever made is, is interesting and it's worth talking about and and to put the the pedestrian box office numbers into into context i want to point out that on its opening weekend it finished ninth damn in the box office which was just ahead of quiz show which was already in its fifth weekend wow in 1994 it was the 51st highest grossing film Damn. Which is pretty low. That's very low. That's very low. Given the critical success and given the seven Oscar nominees, I would go out on a limb and say that that is the lowest box office for a film that received that many Oscar nominees. Yeah. No, I would say if that, yeah, I would agree completely. If that doesn't hold the record, that's goddamn close. When's the last time you saw this before last night? Years, years and years. I'm trying to remember definitively because I saw it for the first time I borrowed the DVD from my friend Joe in high school and saw it like sophomore or junior of high school, really liked it. And then I must, I bet I would have seen it in its entirety probably again in college at some point. But yeah, I mean, this is a movie, I think part of it being it just like constantly on on cable, it was just kind of around and I've seen, seen bits and pieces of it here and there for years. And so it's just, and it's, it's just like such a universally beloved movie that like, it, it's the type of movie almost like Sixth Sense or Titanic where it's like you you know the movie it's talked about so much that you just it's probably it gets to be a long long time before you ever watch the movie in its entirety again because you're kind of like you feel so familiar with it that it feels like yeah I don't I've already seen it I don't need to watch it again. So so when you said you drop into it or you've seen bits and pieces of it I noticed that the structure is not it's not super traditional traditionally structured. It's almost like a bunch of little episodes. Yeah. Did you feel this way. Yes, I that episodic is the perfect way of putting it. I did find myself really struck by particularly think like moments that I remember, like sequences that I remember coming way earlier than I thought they did. So specifically the Brooks sequence of him being released from prison and kind of meeting his his fate. I thought that came way later. So when we were going through that sequence, when I was watching this movie last night, I was like, oh, damn, like this is the beginning of the movie. And yes, agreed. It also, I think contributing to that, I don't remember it spanning that much time. I guess maybe I wasn't watching it with with kind of absorbing those details at the age I was at. But the, the fact that it covers like 20 years it w- was sort of lost on me. I wouldn't have been able to tell you that before last night's viewing. I didn't remember that at all. Yeah, and it, and it does it does so very elegantly too, without a lot of makeup, without a lot of like, because mm-hmm. they're in a prison, you don't see the world changing around them. You would mm-hmm. in like a normal sort of epic, sprawling feature film. And, mm-hmm. and you, you, you do sense the time passing, even though it, it lacks like the, the visual cues to, to help with that. Yeah, I, yes, 100, yes, definitely. When you think back to the movie, the, it, it seems like all these stories weave together, like are edited together, but there's really these segments like of the, 
the fresh fish segment and then it's over and then like the sister segment and the sisters thing is really over mm -hmm. early in the movie and then you have brooks you have tommy did any 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 one of these episodes would you have a favorite i guess is my question um well here before we let's put a pin in this because i want to know like overall like what's your experience with this movie like how, like how do you feel about this movie did when did you first see it and what and like how did you feel about it when you first saw it i think the first time i saw it i watched it with my grandpa who was not a huge like he he liked movies but he wasn't like a a big cinephile film guy mm -hmm. and uh he and he loved this movie and he he sat me down and watched it probably when i was maybe 10 12 years old or something like that hmm. and uh I, I remember being pretty blown away by it it's a really it's really accessible movie i think uh, yeah yeah that doesn't matter your your age or or you you don't like a, a lot of a lot of people can a lot of different people uh can access this movie well and like you know maybe i'm jumping ahead a little bit but i think that's part of why it has such a staying power why it's so beloved that we talk a lot on this podcast about subtext and mm -hmm. about the stories happening underneath the plot underneath what what you see happening on screen and often those movies that are heavy with subtext are a little bit less accessible i'm not saying you need to be smarter to enjoy them but you need to work a little hot, harder as an audience member maybe you need to have some tools as a film watcher um to really like understand the grammar and really understand what's going on but this movie you know it it, it starts to address a lot of themes and ask a lot of questions and mm -hmm. but it's not it's not hard to access those ideas no and you saying this is so true and it's also uh, re reminding me of when i first watched the movie which was in high school it was just like maybe a weekend night and i was in my basement watching the dvd by myself and my grandparents were over and they were like visiting upstairs and i was just kind of like chilling downstairs and i do remember my grandpa came down just to kind of like say hi and in hindsight i'm like okay as a teenager like why wasn't i like pausing the movie and going to like visit with my goddamn grandparents when they were visiting but that was on me but he came down and just like sat down and watched like a part of the movie with me and it was the part where the warden uh shoots himself in the head and at the end of the movie but I, that sticks in my head where like my grandpa just came down, sat down and again, not a cinephile, but like love movies. And like, I didn't bat an eye. Like it was like, it's totally, anyone can come into the room, sit down, watch a piece of it, be moved. It, it, it makes an impression and leave. It is like the, the accessibility of this movie, I think is not to be overlooked and why it's become the, the touchstone that it has. It's like, so you can plug in at any point at any time and love it. And yeah, that, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. And that, that is a, a, you know, I, I think in some ways that's the point of storytelling. That's the point of making movies is, um, to, to tell stories that different people can pull different, uh, meaning out of. Yeah, absolutely. Appeals to the smartest person in the room, appeals to the dumbest person in the room, everyone in between. That's the, that's where it's at. That's the timeless. That's where we get the timeless classics. So we, you know, we, we have a packed episode and yeah, there's not, we don't really have a, a playbook for how we go about these deep dives. Sometimes we, you know, we really go in and we almost go through scene by scene. I don't think we have the, the time, unfortunately for this. So 
let's let's talk about this a little bit in in broader brush strokes and i'll go back to the question i asked you before yeah which one of these episodes or or, or moments do you really enjoy what's your favorite one the one that really struck me was when Andy gets the beers when they're all uh, re-roofing the, the, the prison. It's kind of the first episode that we get of Andy's sort of lifting those around him and looking out for those around him and gifting that and gifting life to those around him. And it is the sequence where we, it, 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 you know, when we actually see the prisoners sipping the beers and the sun is rising, it's 10 a.m. in the morning and we get Morgan Freeman's voice over there. And it's just, it, it, it's so beautiful in the way he describes that it, it's 10 a.m. in the morning and they had a little taste of heaven. They could have been anywhere at that point. It's, it just feels like it strikes this beautiful, like, chord. It just, like, it, it, it is one of the points in the movie where it really reaches down into the depths of, I'll go ahead and say mythic yearnings to sound pretentious, but it really touches upon something that is very stirring and very universal and so human. I like teared up. It was one of the only times I teared up in the movie watching it this time. And it just like really took me off guard. And it also made me aware too, how warm that sequence is with the sun and everything. And then they cut to the next sequence and it's an exchange between Andy and red in the yard. And it, and it, the coldness of the lighting is really striking of like, oh yeah, you realize that this movie is lit gray and blue and very sterile and cold. And that kind of golden sequence of them sipping the beers kind of it makes that apparent of, of what Andy's bringing to them, what Andy represents, and also the, the, the uh, lifeless hell that they're in in Shawshank. I really love that sequence. Yeah, that's a great point about the, the lighting, the colors. And the movie is so monotone and it's so gray and devoid of like any sort of like primary color is just like slate gray black and that that sequence really stands out because it's one of the few times that you get this warm color and then not to really jump ahead and talk too much about the ending but in the ending the the blue of the ocean is mm. so strong yeah. compared to this god this, damn this overcast world you've been in for the last two hours yeah even even the with, with the exception of that scene well, 100%. And even like, and it's not like the outside world is primary colors because it's like when Brooks is free, when Red is free, that's still slate. When they're out in the free world, it's not, you're so right. It's not until we get to the paradise that the primary colors explode and you get that. Man, yeah, as you're saying this, you get the ocean that they say has no memory and it's just like in full vivid color. It's God damn, it's gorgeous. How about you, Max? What What's the sequence? What's the sequence that stands out to you as your favorite? Hmm. Probably when Andy's getting gang raped by the sisters over and over again in the first third of the movie. Good Lord. <laughs> that, that um, I forgot how long that sequence is. Like I, I, cause I remember the one scene where it's like, you know, Morgan Freeman's like, I wish I could tell you that Andy didn't, you know, that sort of famous line in sequence, but I had forgotten that it was like a whole episode in the movie. You know, maybe this is a, yeah, maybe the, this is a cop out, but I, 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 I want to talk about it. And we, we've been on a quest talking about movies with perfect endings. And mm. I don't know that this movie has a perfect ending, but from the moment when Andy sort of very obscurely gives Red the game plan, and it almost seems like he's contemplating committing suicide mm. to the end of the movie, that the movie flies and it's really fun. And I wish that I could see it every time I watch this movie. I wish I could see it with my eyes the first time because it is 
such a great reveal when when the warden throws the stone yeah. at Miss Fuzzy Britches, mm-hmm. and you and, and you don't see the stone go through the poster; you just hear it. Yeah, and it's my it's mind boggling too when yes. when he rips it down and you see the hole. And Dude, like, it's yes dude yes 100 i i'm totally with you and i am struck by that because it is because it's such an iconic movie i i lost sight of that where it's just like him having the rope and just kind of the the um bait and switch of is he going to commit suicide is so lost like i had to remind myself of that watching at this time and it you're so right a first viewing of this movie you know a 20th viewing of this movie is rewarding but like the first viewing to actually like be under the complete storytelling spell of it i can't imagine the 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 impact that it would have yeah yeah, really i remember made the hair on on the back (sighs) of my neck damn hell yeah love it wait so is wait so what what sequence what what episode that so i guess that it's kind of a cop-out answer i don't think Um, i don't think that's a cop-out i do because it is so iconic i think it's like easy to overlook but you're so right like the the sound of the the rip and then you hear just like the, the the echo of how deep the rock is going is so and you never see the poster when they're when they're confiscating the room like when they're looking for him like it doesn't you don't get you don't see the poster once not even like in the side of frame so it really is god it's good and beautiful how they don't when andy first starts to carve his name into the wall and it cuts after he does the a yeah so you don't even have the inkling that this is this is a possibility I, and from a storytelling level because it's like you're not seeing it really throws you something that has not been like you haven't been hinted at other than the poster but like in terms of him like shaking like incremental bits of the wall out in the yard like you don't even get hints of that so it really is from a storytelling perspective i don't know like the risk that that is but it's like you really haven't even been setting up your audience to be like see you could have guessed this all along it's like no no one would have guessed this and yet it is still so goddamn satisfying and i, I I'll, I'll throw out another moment this is maybe my my the my favorite episode is not the fresh fish episode mm-hmm. but my favorite shot and shout out to Roger Deakins, who has had a very illustrious career, was mm-hmm. nominated for Best Cinematographer for this film. But when the bus is first entering Shawshank and you're like in the outside with trees and richness of the world and it's like the helicopter shot of the bus. Oh, my God, dude. Oh, my the God. The prison. Yes. And then reveals everybody standing in the prison yard, I guess. is yeah. a. a yeah, I mean it's a it's a breathtaking yes. shot. I'm I'm so glad you said that because that is, and Thomas Newman's score, which is equally haunting and aching and timeless. That that like I don't know if it's a cello that's like being showcased at that on that helicopter shot, but I that helicopter shot from. I remember that from the first viewing is that's the thing that stuck with me. And that's the part of the score. If like sometimes I'll just open Spotify and tr- and try to find that track with that sequence in it because it is breathtaking is the perfect word for it and it's interesting that you say like you go from the outside world and then see the inside of it because to me it's like i don't know it's just like setting it's just setting the scene of like where we are and that cello man fucking remains with me to this day so good another clear episode in this story is the story of Tommy, like the young kind of James Dean rockabilly guy who comes in. You know, I think as an audience member, I don't remember how I felt the first time I saw this, but 
I think it's left a little bit ambiguous. You don't think Andy killed his wife, but I guess you don't know that for sure. The way the first sequence is shot until Tommy comes and tells the story about the fucking crazy cellmate he had who is actually responsible for, for the, what the murder of Andy's wife. Which is kind of crazy that as an audience member, you root for him. I guess the way they get away with that is that they make like the murder that he's, uh, you know, convicted of, they make him a victim as well of us like, well, his wife was cheating on him. And, and like, it was a crime of passion where it was just like, Ooh, yikes. But also like, it wasn't like, uh, maybe, maybe cut what I'm saying out of the episode. Cause now I'm like defending like an understandable killing. No, but I think what we're talking about is that I think the first time I saw it, it was still ambiguous. Yeah, absolutely. Up until this point, whether just, just, and I feel like that's what Darabont wants mm-hmm. the way he sort of cuts around that first sequence and he cuts from the car to the gun to the courtroom. Mm-hmm. I think he wants to leave a little ambiguity that you're, you, you like Andy, you believe in Andy, but you can't be sure that he's innocent of this crime. For sure. Until For sure. We, uh, we get this great sequence with Tommy. Did you like this sequence? I loved it. I loved it. I, 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 yeah, I was waiting for it, and I was struck by how late in the movie. I mean, it comes about an hour and 20 into the movie, which is pretty late, and so that kind of struck me. But I love this sequence, and I, and I did forget how it ended how like his, his, what Tommy's fate was and kind of what Tommy represents and how it pushes the story forward. The sequence also really solidifies that Warden is evil. Oh yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's what this is. It's like, it's like partially like, okay, we find out that like if, yeah, it's like this character's purpose from a story perspective is like inform Andy and the audience that he is in his, or inform the audience that Andy is indeed innocent showcase like plus Andy is like, savior quality of just being like helping this dude get his his high school equivalency and then like third just like make us hate the warden beyond a shadow of a doubt it draws a line in the sand of, oh yeah of what's going on here if you had any oh, yeah. doubt that andy is innocent and a great guy you don't need to think that anymore and then <laughs> if you had any doubt that maybe warden uh you know had some good intentions you don't just doubt no. that anymore I would call this the end of the sequence when Warden goes to visit Andy in solitary. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he says, uh, nothing stops. Nothing. You will do the hardest time there is. No more protection from the guards. I'll pull you out of that one bunk Hilton and cast you down with the sodomites. You'll think you've been fucked by a train and the library gone, sealed off brick by brick. We'll have us a little book barbecue in the yard. They'll see the flame for miles. We'll dance around it like wild engines. You understand me catching my drift or am I being obtuse? <laughs> Jesus. And then follows it and follows it up with another month. Yeah. Like almost too heavy handed, but uh, almost, I uh, would say, yes, the, 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 they'll see the books burning for miles. When I was listening, when I was watching, I was like, okay, this is like a little, like just a dial too. But I mean, it, yeah, I mean, in terms of villainous monologues, it's hard to beat. We are going to take a little break here. And uh, when, when we come back, we're lucky enough to be joined by Gil Bellows, who played Tommy. And uh, we'll, we'll hear a little bit about his, his thoughts on this film 27 years later and his, his experience shooting it. So I'm very looking excited. forward to this conversation. Very, very excited. 
Gil, I will, uh, I will reiterate one more time. Thank you so much for joining us on our, our podcast. This is the first time, it's not the first time we've had a guest, but this is the first time that we've had a guest uh, who was um, instrumental and in, in participating in the, in the film that we're discussing. So mm -hmm. um, no pressure, but I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to hear some new insight about this movie. Uh, I'll, I'll say first of all, Max, it's it's really nice to be with you and, and, and you too, Nick, a real pleasure. Uh, the thing that I will say is it's a very dangerous thing to follow anything when someone says no pressure. <laughs> that That's like, that's, that's such a loving tongue. I, 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 <laughs> pressure, pressure, welcome, pressure, pressure. Okay. Let's embrace it. Let's embrace yeah. it. Yeah. It, it does pipes or makes diamonds. Let's make some diamonds. Yes, <laughs> hell yes. Getting started uh, with Shaw the Shawshank Redemption, just kind of as a cultural uh, touchstone. What was your first kind of inkling of involvement with this? Were you was the part written for you? Did you audition for it? Did you hear about it? Like, what was your first kind of uh, um, like experience with the movie? Well. I mean, it's it, the reality is it started way before that. My experience with the movie happened when I read the series of short stories or the novellas uh, way back when I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And, uh, you wow. know, a kid in Vancouver just like digging Stephen King novels. And uh, I read Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. And I thought it was the third best of the four short stories in the, in, in the collection. <laughs> And it was beautiful, but I really, I, I thought at pupil as a short, as a novella was incredible. And the body, which was stand by me, I thought that was incredible. You know, I, I really liked Rita Hayworth and Shawshank. Uh, but then when I read the script, it was, I, I still believe it is. And my guess is I'll prob I probably could very well feel at the end of my life that it's the best script I've ever written. Like as a piece of screenwriting, you know, all the things that were excellent in the book became just sublime and like deeply moving and funnier and richer and more detailed than the script. It was like, Frank had a cellular understanding of the inner language of Stephen King's writing. And he managed to honor every single ounce of it and then put his own little special sauce on top of it. And so when I finished reading it, I was at that time, I was a 25 year old actor living in New York city. Um, and, you know, I had a theater company. I had very little money in my pocket and major dreams and you know they said that i was going to get a shot to audition for this movie and i was like i i felt like i like i read the script and the lines were like burned in my head and my heart like that's how connected to the material i felt on a personal level and then uh and then i got a call three days later that brad pitt was going to do it poor guy i wonder what happened to him anyway uh <laughs> so there was this thing um where uh, he was going to do it. And I just was like, of course he is like, he fucking should, you know, um, I would argue still, I would make the argument that, uh, had he played the role and I didn't, it probably would have done better at the time in terms of like, just like just by the nature of the bump of 
his energy and wattage in that role like because he was he was just you know like he did an uh, interview with the vampire in legends of the fall instead you know um from like an agent standpoint really good moves like from a historical standpoint one of the good what ifs it's like sports mm. and trades right like you or players from different eras the movie the movie ultimately didn't suffer from the lack of his presence but you know as my daughter who is my daughter and in, in many ways like the her existence in some ways was was supported in part by my casting and that would have rather that brad pitt had played that role so let's see <laughs> <laughs> that's there so and then all of a sudden you know because of those roles he fell out and so frank came to new york for two days he was going to read for that role he was going to read 10 i think it was 10 or 12 of us over a two-day period for that role and he was meeting people for other roles as well and then i i somehow i'd made the cut because deb aquila bless her the casting director um you know one of the all-time great casting directors and uh also you know just one of those people who um i think her love of cinema and kind of the organic piecing together of energies and personalities into a piece like it, she 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 has a she has a way about doing that that i think is really beautiful you know she cast primal fear which i think is also a really sensational piece of casting from top to bottom if you look at everybody in there they're excellent uh mm -hmm. and they all have gone on to do tremendous things in their career you know there are other examples of it but just like a real kind of you know, it's not always the like she never always went with the biggest. And, and so and she, you know, she changed my life by backing me and supporting me in what comes between that space between doing an audition and getting the offer, especially when something like that was so highly sought after. So it was one of those moments in my life that I wish for everybody, which is that you've had a dream you aspire to have some kind of acknowledgement to let you know that you're not fucking crazy, you know, that absolutely what you're devoting your life to might actually yield some dividends and that you actually have something to offer and that there's a place for you in all of this. Cause I think one of the reasons why I love storytelling and I think that Shawshank just resonates more and more, especially I think, in the times we're living in right now, you know, a global pandemic is, uh, there's so many insidious aspects to it, but I think the big one is it isolates us in so many ways. And storytelling reminds us that we're not alone. And I think the greatest legacy of the spirit of that story is that love endures and that true friendship can overcome anything uh, in, 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 its, in its mortal form. You know, uh, you know, you can't stop death from happening or certain unfortunate inevitabilities. But the concept of loving somebody, like truly loving somebody, can last a lifetime. It can just manifest in a variety of different ways. And I think the spirit of hope in that love story is just beautiful. Yeah, and like you know, I, I hadn't thought about this much until you just until you just connected the story to the pandemic. And I don't want to be overly dramatic and you know say that this pandemic represents a, a, a prison for all of us individually. But it, part, of the, part of the story 
or, or part of um, theme is like maintaining freedom within an unfree world, unfree situation. So I'm glad I'm glad you yeah. said that. That's the first time I thought about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you just articulated that beautifully. It's uh, like it's so funny. I, I call the room that I'm in presently. At, you know, I'm I'm on location here in Greenwood, Mississippi, and uh, the way they have it set up because because of COVID and also because just of the complexities of bringing a large group of people to a small town. Um, you know, the infrastructure really isn't there, so. We're staying in a Holiday Inn Express, and uh, so my room. I, 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 you know, I'm calling it my room to you, but I call it my lab and my cell, depending on my relationship with it. So, you know, I, I completely agree with you, Max. Like, there's this, there's this real kind of integral, internal, and I think spiritual demand on all of us right now to look inside ourselves and just be a little better you know, be a little gentler with ourselves and be a little better to others, whatever that means to you. Uh, it, I, I think that that's what these circumstances are demanding really of us to be conscious about. And I think the progression of the story of Shawshank is that somebody learned after withstanding years of emotional, physical, mental degradation for crimes he didn't commit he i think he understood innately somewhere in his soul in this journey that he was guilty of something and that that guilt that guilt ultimately was that he didn't value either his life or the or the lives around him with the kind of respect and reverence that he was finding anything of value at this point and it's one of the tragedies of human beings is usually enlightenment comes after great pain and loss. You know, for him, it had to be his freedom and the loss of his wife, freedom to understand that, you know, this prison that he was in was uh, a reflection of his emotional, his, his inability to be intimate really put him in that, put him in that circumstance. And so, you know, he ultimately learned how to be while he while she, while keeping a, an enormous secret, he he learned how to become a full version of himself. Well, let's, let's bring, bring it back a little bit back, back outside, outside of the story, story. and because, because we do we, we do like, like to jump, jump into themes and, and and one specific question I want to ask you is like so you, at what 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 we're really what we're really interested in about this movie is its amazing staying power. Like I, I, I mentioned on our last episode, this is a movie that like film buffs love. This is a movie my grandpa was like one of his favorite movies. My, my best friend's mom who like hardly watch any movies. This is one of her favorite films. And at, at what point, I mean, I'd like to talk about why that is because I have a few thoughts, but at what point in this project did you start to suspect that this had that sort of special nature to it when i finished the script wow i think i've been like out of all the 10 like the, the 10 scripts that really like to me i think were next level uh in a way that spoke to me on a, a whole bunch of levels right like satisfied my desire for excellent entertainment 
had something incredibly deep to say, either based on like real circumstances or imagined, but that they resonated on a on a level that I felt like it was pushing forward a global conversation about something. And then finally, for my own self-serving purposes, a role where I could actually contribute on, on some significant level to the project. You know, and this was like genius on every level, right? I mean, I, I you know, I remember like that year, I, I you know, I was lucky enough to read um, Pulp Fiction, Shawshank, uh, Forrest Gump, and The Usual Suspects before they came out and, and you know, meet on them, read, read for them. And, uh, wow. and uh, look, I, I, I mean, I knew all of them were going to be monster movies i you, you know what's interesting is they all still have a significant place in cinematic history now like they 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 mean something maybe in many ways more now than they did in the moment because they were just part of a crop of whatever was coming out over those couple of years but i mean and again look all those movies that i just described are part of the reason why it's a different time and a different circumstance and a different situation is I just named a bunch of movies where collectively, I think that there are eight or nine women in them. Right. Right. A, 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 you know, scarcity of minority characters. Uh, I think maybe one of the movies might not even have a minority character. It, it, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, where there there are aspects to it where you look at it from the perspective of now and there's some things that would be distinctly different though i would say that i think i think 3 out of the 4 probably to in many ways would you know stand the test of time or that sniff test on all levels right like i think you know shawshank like it's pretty brilliant the way it was put together in terms of uh you know the casting of morgan First of all, it was inspired and brilliant on so many different levels. Look, we did a table read before we all started. They brought the whole cast in. This was about a month before we started filming. And some of us stayed for rehearsals and everything else. And then others left within a few days. And we did a table reading at the prison in this open space that I guess at one point had been the cafeteria, but by then had been converted and kind of like an outdoor, was pretty decrepit at that point. Uh, when they built the new prison, that part of the facility just like started to break down. And so there was like crumbling rock and all of that. Anyway, it was very theatrical, right? In the sense of you're in the actual environment, sitting in chairs around this giant table with a few executives and all the keys and every actor. And I'm sitting across, James Whitmore is sitting beside me which just like from like a historical perspective, I'm sitting next to somebody who was in the blacklist trials, right? I mean, that is fucking crazy, right? Yeah. And, and, then, and then there's uh, Morgan Freeman was uh, at the head of the table. And Tim was across and Roger Deakins was on the other side and Frank was at the other head with Nikki. And then we all were sitting there and my leg my leg was just shaking the whole fucking time morgan should have gotten the oscar for the table read <laughs> wow. wow yeah i mean it was the most it was like it, to, to say it was beautiful and moving and incredible like we're all aware of the power 
the persuasive and incredibly um, brain-tingling power of Morgan Freeman's voice, right? It's, mm-hmm, of course. It's, ne- it's next level. Yeah. In this way that defines, like, you don't have to even understand English to kind of understand what he's saying. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so that would have been the, my next time, you know, of knowing when this thing was going to be truly special. This will be something that you you'll appreciate because to me this is the this is where I learned my lesson. Um, I didn't learn it well, but I learned it, which was um, when we finished doing the movie and they'd finished cutting it. They arranged a screening for Morgan at Willie Morris um, in Los Angeles, um, and since I was a client there at the time, my my manager at the time was this wonderful crazy woman who I still love and adore tremendously. And when I say crazy, I don't mean like certifiably insane i mean just an absolute old school complete stream of consciousness seat of her pants brilliant assessment of potential uh, you know when i think of the people who started with her like whether it was john you know john c Riley or, or uma thurman or like on and on like it's just like it's crazy right so i i'm in la at the time and she says to me she's like there's a screening for morgan at two o'clock at William Morris, go. I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm, like, I, I'm like, are you saying I'm, I was invited? She's saying, no, you weren't invited, but go. And I was like, all right. So I said, I said to my girlfriend, who is now my wife, we, we, so we go in there and there's this, you know, it's the old screening room and it's, I don't know, it's, I think 80 chair screening room or something like that. And, um, Frank is there and Morgan and some William Morris agents and I don't know, maybe one or two other people. And then Rhea and I come sit down and Frank looks at me and he's like, Gil, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm crashing the screening. <laughs> he's like, all right, fuck it. <laughs> and then they put the lights down and, uh, and they, we showed, you know, they show the movie and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, this is, you know, it's everything I hoped it would be. It's beautiful. And so I get up, Rhea whispers, like, it's beautiful. I love you. I'm so proud of you. And at this point, we're married, right? Yeah, I mean, good date, for sure. (laughs) So I go in the bathroom to splash some water on my face and just kind of give myself a good look in the mirror and say, like, wow, like, these two agents walk in, two agents that I'm working with, right? And they're like, yeah, that wasn't as good as we thought. Now, yeah, I thought that was going to be way better. And like, and then they see me and they go, yeah, good job. And then they leave. And, and I just, I stood there and I went, okay, I realized like one of them had a couple of clients in Pulp Fiction. And I realized like politically, like probably within the agency, there were massive allegiance issues and all of that shit. And even maybe he didn't like me, who knows? So like just giving me some shade, like might've been, you know, a highlight in his day. But in that moment, it fucking it was like a it was like 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 a spear gun to the heart like what i understood in that moment is that and i think it's the ultimate testament to frank's achievement in this movie is that he had a vision and he saw it you know uh, rob reiner offered him i think three million dollars in 1994 to walk away from being the director plus he would still have had his points everything else yeah, and and plus to finance another whatever movie he wanted to make, which is like wow. quite a deal with the devil, man. Wow. And yeah, and he said, and he said no, 
and he did it. And I think about that and I think about all the time in my life that I've wasted not focusing that way about things. Hmm. Like if you really fucking care, like if something is really important to you, that is a demonstration of it. Before we got on air, I just want to just as a correlation to this and then we then then I'll shut up because I've been rambling like crazy. And I'm like, That's why you're here. We want to hear your story. Yeah, yeah, it's loving it. So I'm here in Mississippi doing the, the limited series about the murder of Emmett Till and then and the subsequent trial. And it's 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 called Women of the Movement because this story is the you know match that lit the flame of the civil rights movement. Right. Because shortly after this, when Rosa Parks was sitting on the bus and they told her to go to the back, she said no. And, and when they said why, and she said, because of Emmett Till. And, um, and so it's the passing of the baton from Mamie Till, who refused to close the casket so the whole world could see what had been done to Emmett Till, to Rosa Parks saying, I will not go to the back of the bus. All of this, I feel like, is connected to the same spirit that drove Frank through the process of making that film. In that he, there was something really, like, you know, on a personal level, deeply important to, the, to him that was encapsulated in this. And that he understood it as well as the person who conceived the idea in the first place, Stephen King. And by doing that... And doing it in that way, he, he's he's provided so much joy to so many people. And and going back to what you said, Max, just about this time, and like I hardly go out. I'm hardly out at all. Uh, in part because the job that I have when I'm doing it, I'm one of the most tested people on the planet. Right? Like we get tested every day uh, when you're shooting, and and it's immediate traces and then every second or third day they do the uh the, the more long-term ones as well and so i'm you know just seeing the pressures that people are, are facing just to do their jobs right like just to live their lives in 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 these circumstances the affinity that you connected to the experience of all those characters in shawshank we're really all feeling that we're understanding that with restrictions become great emotional and spiritual challenges along with the practical, right? And we're in that place right now, you know, whether it's, you know, the events of January 6th, the events of the last four years, uh, this global pandemic, and just the way messaging hits people. The thing about the message of the spirit of this film is that ultimately faith and hope, love and friendship these are qualities, these are characteristics that can overcome tyranny, that can outlast evil, and that can endure even in the most remote, awful environments. And, and, and those are messages that we all need reinforced because we're all facing challenges. And in these moments, very few people have the strength and fortitude or the ability, wherewithal, to say anything about it but they can recognize it when they see it in others. And in that film, I think people can recognize and see parts of themselves. And in seeing it, I think that that gives them comfort. And that comfort, whatever that means, that's love. Okay, that was, uh, that was Gil Bellows and uh, super cool. We could, we could get a little insight. 100%, um, that was I, so cool. The, the, the conversation we had with him 
was sprawling and I don't know if we'll have we'll have the conversation in its entirety in our, our final episode, but we'll be sure to release a, a bonus episode. Um, and you, if you're if you're curious to hear more, you can listen to that conversation front to back that we had with Gil. You know, we didn't really talk about his career, but I, I would guess that this is his most iconic performance. But Gil's a great actor and he's in a bunch of a bunch of cool stuff. What, what are some good movies that I've seen Gil in? He's in Love in a 45, or I think around the same time Shawshank was shot. He's in a, uh, a really underrated movie um, called The Weatherman starring Nicolas Cage. I think yeah. Gore Verbinski directed it. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but I, I like that movie a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he has a, um, a extensive IMDb and he has a new show coming out, which sounds uh, pretty interesting based on what we just chatted about. So if you're a, if you're a cinephile dive a little bit deeper into Gill's filmography you won't be disappointed 100 percent 100 percent let's let's move towards the latter half of our conversation and what is so interesting about this movie it's really a, a great film it's really a um, a film that has shown that it has like tremendous staying power and I think that's worth talking about a little bit more I know we've already talked about it but let's let's get a little bit further into it so do you have any any thoughts on on this movie's ability to to hang in there as time passes you know it's interesting because we you know we as we talked about in talking with Gil just about the the timeless and universal feeling of wanting freedom of feeling oppressed of of the many infinite manifestations of that this movie captures it so well i mean why watching it this time i was just like struck by how aching kept is the word that kept coming to mind there's like an ache to the movie and it like and i think that is because it's like it strikes it really strikes that thing that other so many other movies don't there's like this gentle aching to the movie that is it's so hard to to pinpoint but is i think the culmination of every piece of the movie from the acting to the cinematography to the direction to the soundtrack and and it's it just strikes something like so universal in terms of why or how i don't know i don't know but it is an x factor because you can even like say like okay what about other like because they're in the scope of films there are many great I'm not saying that this is the best great film, but it is way, 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 way up there. And in terms of why, it's the X factor. I it, and to me, it's like as Gil sort of said, like it, it sounds like it was apparent from the script. It sounds like the way it was when he read it to to the final product was was um, was translated perfectly. And it's not repeatable, but this movie has it, and it has it in a huge, huge way. The uh, so there's there's some interesting stories surrounding the production of this of this film, and one is that it's it's sort of crazy to think about, you know, with with some familiarity with the IP world and and the 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 value behind uh, stories and the ability to option stories that you want to turn into a film. That I didn't know this, but Stephen King, who's obviously super prolific. He used to have a dollar deal he used to help new directors build a resume. And what the deal was is he would sell his short stories to specific directors for a dollar, the rights to his stories for a dollar to go and make them. Um, And that's how he originally established a relationship with Frank Darabont, 
who obviously the director of this film, Frank Darabont read this novella. It, it's kind of crazy that this, I, I've never read the novella, but it's 96 pages, which seems very short compared to the length and the epic nature of the movie. Yeah. I could see Red Story, it being like almost like a Hemingway style, like very short, very curt, and and having the poetry exist in that way. I could see it working that way. Um, it wouldn't be my first guess, but hearing that that's how the short story is, is is I could see that working. The novella is called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Stephen King sold the rights to this story to Darabont for $5,000, which is extremely low number. And King never cashed the check. Later, he framed the check and returned to Darabont, accompanied by a note which read, in case you ever need bail money, love, Steve. Love it. Love it. <laughs> Stephen King's on record saying that this is his favorite adaptation of one of his stories, which is saying something. That certainly is. Certainly is. A talking point. Is this the best Stephen King adaptation? I mean, immediately we're comparing it to The Shining, which is tough. That's tough, man. Yeah, I was trying to throw you a softball there. Yeah. I can't can't really bite on that one. Yeah. I mean, Um, two very, I mean, it is. in the Kubrick call to myself, but. Sure. But I mean, like, there's no doubt it's certainly one of the greatest for sure. I think it's like those two movies. And they're both so different. It's, I think, also in the promotion of this movie, they decided not to use Stephen King's name to divorce it from, like, the pulpy material that he was associated with, like Cujo and It and the scary stories and stuff, which is interesting finding out that this is based on a Stephen King story because not being a Stephen King reader at the time that I saw this movie, it was like, oh, that's crazy that there's it wasn't scary at all. Cool. Yeah, I think it, it's worth pointing out that it's kind of hard to say, like, what's the best adaptation when I haven't really read all these Stephen King books, but I can, you know, say from a, a film watcher's standpoint, and it's interesting that I think we'll agree Shining is probably the best adaptation, which Stephen King famously hated that uh, adaptation of his of his story. But to jump off what you're saying, I think two of his most famous uh, stories that were turned into films are Shawshank Redemption and Stand By Me, both are which are not what you think of when you think of classic Stephen King. No, a great point. And I mean, Gil's point that or made me aware that those two stories were a part of the same collection, which is crazy. Yeah, two very beautiful, timeless, very non-scary <laughs> stories. It makes me aware of like how prolific Stephen King has been. I mean, I know that's always sort of well known, but like once we get into territory where it's like, oh man, this is based off of like a short story that he did in like the eighties, is like, damn, this dude's got ideas. <laughs> like, what what is this dude been plugged into? Because it's like ideas up the yin yang. It's insane. Yeah. It's insane. Can I just say like a, like kind of a, a fun point? The actor who plays um, the the kind of head prison guard Byron um, is Clancy Brown. The actor is Clancy Brown, who voices Mister Krabs in SpongeBob. Um, and okay. and I I didn't grow up certainly with SpongeBob, but I'm familiar enough with it that I did have to Google this like halfway through the movie, be like, how do I know this voice? And once I found that out, I couldn't help but hear Mr. Krabs whenever uh, the prison guard Byron uh, was talking, just like, yar, give me me Krabby Patties, and then beats beats the ass of of a of a prisoner. It was kind of humorous in a dark way, in a dark way. <laughs> It was so fascinating to hear Gil talk about kind of just like the 
casting scene at the time where he's just referencing Brad Pitt was rumored to be up for the role, all this. I mean, that's such a different movie. It's also like just really cool to like think of like this movie, like kind of having some heat uh, or the script having some heat behind it in regards to like the audition world at the time is just really, really cool. And also just like, you know, the movie has become and has been for such a long time an absolute and kind of an artifact of like culture and a touchstone that like to hear it referenced as like, you know, as, as the organic fluid creative project that every movie is, is really a really cool reminder. And, and also I found it to be kind of inspiring to be like, yeah, like this is how movies are made. Even like the, the, the all time greats. Um, a couple little, just like things I'm going to just drop in there. We're, we're not really like on uh we're not like really in a structure anymore, but I found there is like a, a nice meta quality to this movie and, and cinema gives a lot of opportunities for meta quality. But I, I like how the prisoners find an escape watching the old films oh, nice. and, and you as an audience member are finding an escape watching oh. this story. And then in the end, Andy literally escapes like through a frame of a film yeah that's really cool that's really cool yeah that's a great point i I thought of that i don't remember the exact quote but at some point morgan freeman uh red says to andy oh man those are just shitty pipe dreams and then he like escapes through a shit pipe (laughs) damn (laughs) to his shitty pipe dreams holy cow great call Great call. I really we 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 t- we touched upon it, but I really like liked the just the phrase of they say the waters have no memory. There, I found to be particularly beautiful, and then how that comes into play, kind of how we referenced earlier, and that last shot is just gorgeous. Like it's a perfect confluence of of setup, payoff, and it all being visual. There's also trivia that in the script, Red says something to Andy once he sees him on the beach. They have like a verbal exchange. And I think they even filmed it. Um, but Frank Darabont has gone on record uh, as soon as he like was editing it and cut, and saying any words at that point, any like verbal exchange between those two characters at that point was the worst thing ever written in any movie ever. <laughs> something to that effect of like how it just like completely <laughs> deflated the 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 moment whatsoever and it yeah it's hard to imagine that that um that moment with with words i think we uh i think we need to transition out it's a damn shame we didn't uh really dive into to more of the filmmaking aspects of this but yeah i mean i truly feel like we we didn't even talk about the movie <laughs> in a in a weird way um but yeah it's been a pleasure yeah, so you know, we'll do this. We'll 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 exit this deep dive the same way um, we do with all of our deep dives. I had this as my number two movie, I believe, of nineteen ninety four. Uh oh. And you omitted it from your Mount Rushmore of nineteen ninety four movies. After this most recent viewing, are you? Do you have any reconsiderations you want to share with us? Yeah. Um. Man, I mean, I knew it was like kind of provocative of me to keep it like off the list you're all about that provocation (sighs) not not needless not needless um (laughs) all man this is crazy but i'll go ahead and replace speed with this movie no 
God damn, man. That took your breath away. So I had speed off my list. I, I know. We just like last week. You had speed on your list and uh, yeah. you're pulling it off this week. It just yeah. goes to show the fickleness of our, of our Mount Rushmore project here, but we'll start. We'll start chiseling. 100%. Well, I'm looking at my list. I had Speed, Dumb and Dumber, Pulp Fiction, Lion King, and Forrest Gump. I love all those movies. Some would argue that Dumb and Dumber could be knocked off, but there's no way that that's happening for me. Speed is the... It's a tough year, man. God damn. It's a tough I'm, year. It's, it's a, a really tough, tough year. year. I mean, this goes back to what the, the anomaly that is 1994. It's, it's crazy. I will... God damn it. I will... Oof. I will go ahead and knock Speed off of my top five and replace it with Shawshank Redemption for the only reason being that I feel like Shawshank has a ranks higher in terms of its uh, of like being seen, being loved, being referenced. I feel like uh, Shawshank wins out over Speed. I did not reference quality there. I did not reference uh, fun. I didn't reference entertainment value. I simply, it is the, the, the place that it holds in society, uh, is what gives Shawshank the, the edge over, over speed and that alone. So I love it. We're not stubborn here on the Oscar one too. No, no, we're fluid. We're supple and, uh, and life and life and, and life is supple. The death is rigid. So, all right. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Please hit the subscribe button on your podcast player. And if you have a moment and enjoyed the show, leave us a good review. It goes a long way to allowing us to, to keep making this podcast, which we're both truly enjoying. Mm-hmm. We'd love to hear from you. If you agree with us, you disagree with us, or have your own hot takes, send us an email or voice memo to theoscarwent2 at gmail.com. And if we think you're onto something, we'll play it on an upcoming episode. And if you have a film you'd like to talk about us, shoot us an email and tell us why you love or hate this, and we'll consider it for our next deep dive. Next week, we are doing Dumb and Dumber, but we still have one open spot for our final deep dive of 1994, and there's a lot of good stuff out there. So mm-hmm. if um, if you have a strong opinion let us know yeah please we're there's a ton to choose from so please send us something and uh we'd love to love to dive in love to hear from you all right nick let's uh let's get busy living or get busy dying here you got it uh i'll I'll see you next week looking forward to it dude good fun good thanks so much for listening yeah bye everybody bye-bye